Hello, this is Brian Bullington, and I am pastor of New Song Family Church in Ventuk, Namibia. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and it's my prayer that this podcast message will help you to grow closer to Jesus as you walk daily with Him. I'd like to welcome you to our Easter service. So glad you're here, and so glad that uh, you value this day. It's my favorite day of the whole year. It's everything we believe in. Uh, is celebrated on this day. Because of what we celebrate, we have life, we have forgiveness, uh, we have victory, and we can have a wonderful life starting now, not just in heaven. So it's a wonderful day to be celebrating what our Jesus has done for us. Uh, When we look at uh, the story uh, that led up to Jesus' death, Jesus took uh, his disciples and asked them to go prepare the room for the Passover. Look back in, uh, in Exodus 12, we read about God's instructions to the Israelites exactly how he wanted the Passover to be done for them to be able to be ready and escape the 10th plague. Anybody remember what the 10th plague was? What? Death of the firstborn son. So God was making a plan that the Israelites could be protected from that 10th plague of the death of the firstborn son. And he gives them very specific uh, instructions on how to do it. So in Exodus 12, he says uh, that the blood, they're supposed to pick a perfect lamb and uh, slaughter it and then use the blood of the perfect lamb and paint their doorposts of their house. And so Uh, when God would pass by, when he would see the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over that house and that plague would not hit that family. Thus, the term Passover. Uh, God promised that if his people sacrificed this perfect lamb and painted the blood around the doorposts, that they would be saved. And when God saw the blood on the doorpost, he left them alone, but then this plague hit uh, the Egyptians, which as you remember the story, uh, Pharaoh's son was also killed during this time and he released the Israelites. The meal was totally set up for them to hurry along. So the roasted lamb, uh, the unleavened bread, the bread without yeast in it so they wouldn't have to take time for it to rise. Um, And God says though, as he's laying out all these instructions before it happens, in Exodus 12, 14, he says, This is a day to remember. Each year, from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. I don't know how many times you've ever noticed, but I like to notice all the times that God tells us to remember something. He's a God of remembering. And so he tells us very often to remember things, and he remembers everything. So, of course, as he's given this instruction for this to be done every year to remember this escape from slavery that God had provided for them, Jesus, being an <coughs> Israelite, also was a part of these Passovers. So Jesus tells his disciples to make preparation for, to celebrate the Passover. While they were eating the lamb and the bread in the upper room and drinking some wine, Jesus, though, takes the meaning of the Passover, takes the meaning of 
uh, these items of the lamb and of the unleavened bread and of the wine. And he redirects the meanings of these symbols of how God saved his people. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to only look back to the past and remember how God had saved the people. But now in the upper room, he begins to present to them of how God is going to save the people in the future. This is all happening before he's arrested and crucified. So he's calling them to look forward with him to a new act of God for all people's salvation. The first Passover established God's covenant for Israel and promised freedom from slavery from the Egyptians. Now, at the Passover meal with Jesus, he speaks of a new covenant and promise through the sacrifice of his blood, the Lamb of God, and the blood poured out of God's firstborn son. As I was studying this, I was telling Brian, I got so emotional just thinking about all how the Old Testament just so clearly feeds into the New Testament and, and calling uh, Jesus the Lamb of God. And for, in John 1, 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus passing by, and it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What a statement. I mean, if you, if we, if you don't know the, the history of the Passover, you might miss. Here's the Lamb of God, the final sacrifice, was walking at that stage by John the Baptist. God's people could now be free from the slavery of sin. In the Last Supper, Jesus was giving the disciples and all of mankind himself. He sat at the table and gave himself. He says in in, uh, the passage, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table, and Jesus said, now listen to this, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. I think anything Jesus said before he died is very, very important. But I think about him wanting to gather that select few of his followers that he loved so very much that had been through everything with him to give these final instructions, but also to be excited about everything was about to change. Jesus was about to create a new covenant with mankind. And he says, I'm so eager to be sitting here eating this meal with you. For I tell you now, I won't eat this meal again until the meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took some bread and he gave thanks to God. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Listen to this. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus saying, When you do this, would you remember me? After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed by my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. We are told to do our Lord's Supper, to do this, to remember what he has done, to celebrate 
that he has saved us from the destruction of our sin. Our God has delivered us from eternal death. He's given us hope as his body was broken and spilled out for us. During the Lord's Supper, when we take it, Jesus has made it something that's very tangible, that makes when you hold this and, and taste it, that takes you exactly back to what Christ has done for us. You know, so often we have things that when you see it, you think of things. It triggers a memory for you. And so when we see the Lord's Supper sitting here, we should instantly be triggered thinking, oh, I remember what Jesus did for me. He died on the cross for me. His body was broken. His blood was poured out for me. This celebration of the Lord's Supper that we have here is all about Jesus. It's not a ritual. It's calling us as followers of Jesus to remember, to tell the story again and again who Jesus is and why he had to die for us because we needed a Savior. We needed to be rescued. We've been enslaved to sin forever. In 1 Corinthians 11, <coughs> Paul says, For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord, unworthy, is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Examining yourself, I believe, means is there something that you haven't confessed to God? That you just need to tell him you're sorry as for his forgiveness. Examining yourself also means are you recognizing what we truly are doing when we take the Lord's Supper? Is it just common stuff? You do this at church and it's just done and ticked off. Or is it something that you really put your mind and heart thinking about this represents what our Jesus gave for us? While uh, I think I have three helpers that I asked to come up and help me, would you come up here now? But while they are coming up, will the rest of you just bow your heads and then just talk to God. Thank him for what he's done. Thank him as you're preparing to go into this time of remembering what our Jesus has done for us on the cross. Thank you.
If you haven't received the uh, bread and juice, raise your hand so we can make sure we haven't missed anybody. Okay, does everybody have now? Everybody's good? So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it <coughs> in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread now. Thank you, Jesus, that you were so willing for your body to be so wounded for our sake. Lord, that you were willing to suffer 
over and over again, Lord, and that you willingly gave this up because you love us so much, that you knew that it was only through the death of your, yourself that we could find freedom. So, Lord, we praise you for allowing your body to be broken on our behalf. Also says, in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this is the cup, this cup is in the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Let's drink the cup now. Jesus, I thank you for this new covenant, this covenant that we don't always have to be afraid that the last sacrifice was too long ago or that we didn't truly get forgiven of our sins, but that you, Jesus, were the, the final sacrificial lamb, the perfect lamb, that you gave your life and your blood for us. Lord, we thank you that through you that we are free from sin, free from its punishment of hell, Lord, that we get to enjoy new life in you the moment we ask you to be our Savior. Lord, I just praise you as we focus on this day of celebration of what you have done, Lord, that you continue to do for all mankind to come. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with yourself. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Good morning, church family. It's so good to, to see so many of the family together here this morning. Also, uh, hello to everybody online. It's uh, great that you're joining us. Hi, JP. Um, it's a beautiful morning. We have people, I think, from uh, Rob is also busy watching, wishing he was here. He sends his love and his regards. Um, so I have seen Passion of the Christ twice, you know, the movie made by Mel Gibson. And the first time that I watched it, I was in South Africa, and the screen that I watched it on was yay big, this big. And um, I remember crying my eyes out. I watched it a second time when I was here in Vintuk, and I made the mistake of, of having a coffee meeting the next morning. Needless to say, my eyes were very poofy, because as you watch probably what is the most realistic portrayal of Jesus, what Jesus went through, uh, the tears were tears of horror of realizing uh, the pain and suffering that Jesus went through of, of, and, and a deep sense of awareness of what Jesus did for us. And so sometimes I can get caught up in the emotions of everything, and my vision becomes very focused on that moment, and you, you get caught up in the emotions, and that I can miss the big picture. The universe-sized moment of glory of the sacrificial love that was happening when Jesus died for us. Those moments from the Last Supper to, when G to Jesus saying it is done and giving his last, uh, last breath was the crescendo of God's majestic symphony, saying uh, that it had been playing from before the, the world had even begun to that very moment where Jesus died for us. If you've ever listened to Vivaldi's Summer, you know there's that moment where everything changes. And so when I look at what Jesus did for us, there's that moment from where everything changes and 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 we see what God has been planning since the beginning of time. The Gospels all tell the story from different perspectives, but when you put them together, you get a very good picture of what Jesus went through. And it would be a, a big mistake to think that the story of the crucifixion starts in the New Testament. We need to be aware of the love that God has uh, always had for us. Um, even before uh, the world was created, before you were, um, as, as my friends always say, a thought 
you know, a twinkle in your mother's eye before you were even around. Jesus was part of the plan. And, and the first indicator we see is in Genesis chapter 3. And we see that, that God is speaking and he's speaking to Satan and he says, I will cause, or to the snake, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. In Genesis, right in the beginning, that's the first indicator that God had a plan, had a plan for each one of us. And it starts in Genesis. When I look at that, I can only stand in awe of how God put everything together. Throughout the Old Testament, we see pictures of Jesus to come. If we have a look in Genesis chapter 22, it says in verse 9, and it's a story of, of Abraham and Isaac, and it says, When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on that boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its thorns in a thicket. And so he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yair, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use the name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And so when we look at that, and there are many scholars who believe that this same mountain is the mountain that Jesus died on. Except that time, the father didn't stay the hand. And at that time, the son dies for us. We read in Isaiah 53, it says, Isaiah, and this is about 700 years before Jesus was walking on this earth, and it says, Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong, he had never deceived anyone, and he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. We see in Isaiah that God had a plan. That there was a plan for each one of us. That this morning as we sit here, that there was a plan. And that plan is available to each one of us. I can go on throughout the Old Testament and time and time again you see it pointing towards Jesus and his mission here on earth. His life, his death, and his resurrection. Every moment of his life had purpose and the cross was the fulfillment of that purpose. As you know, after they left the upper room, Jesus went to go pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we, we read that he, he had extreme anguish. And we read in, in the book of Luke that it was like blood was falling down. And we see that, that Jesus is asking God, the Father, to take the cup from him. But yet he says, not my will, but your will be done. He's arrested after being betrayed by Judas, and he's taken to the high priest, and then before the Jewish council, and then to Pontius Pilate, it gives the crowd the choice of either Barabbas or Jesus. But the crowd wants Jesus dead. And so Jesus gets whipped. 
Now remember, the Jewish law said that more than 40 whips would kill a man, so they moved it down to 39. But if you remember, these weren't Jewish people that were doing the whipping. These were Romans. And so they didn't need to stick to the Jewish law. So we don't know for sure, but there's a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that he was whipped more than 39. I won't go into the detail of it all, but remember that these whips were made to, to basically strip a man of his flesh. And that is what our Lord went through. In Isaiah 53 it says, He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was, with him, uh, was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Each lash was for our transgressions. Jesus carries his cross to Calvary, and when you understand the physical, emotional, mental, as well as the spiritual pain was in, then it sits a little bit differently when you remember that in Matthew 16, Jesus says, if any one of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me. He's nailed to the cross, and after approximately six hours, we read in John chapter 19, that Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, and so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed, up, bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The mission that started so many, many years before Jesus was even on this earth, the mission of paying the price for our sins, that we could be made right before God. The mission of forgiveness for our sins was finished at that moment. Can you just imagine with me what it was like in that moment when possibly the one who had, who had healed you, possibly the one who had delivered you from the demonic, was on the cross, killed. I just have this picture in my mind of all of those who followed Jesus, who were transformed by him while he was alive, looking at his dead body on the cross that moment. How horrific, how horrible it must have been. And everyone standing there looking at him, <clears throat> there's no record at all that anyone looked at him realizing, well, this is not the end. We have no record anywhere that anyone looking at his dead body thought there was a, hu a future and a hope in that moment. But they wanted to honor him in any way, in any case. And so Joseph of Arimathea, who had been part of the Jewish council, looking at the body, went and actually pled with Pilate to say, please, can we have the body? Can we bury this body appropriately? Joseph of Arimathea is, is listed as a rich man. He owned a, a tomb that had been carved out of a piece of rock. And so Pilate gave him permission to get the body, so he went, took the body, and we're told that uh, his body was wrapped in linen. It's a very expensive material, and he was placed in the tomb. And then a stone was rolled over the entrance of this carved-out stone uh, and covered, and Jesus laid inside. The Bible tells us that uh, specific ones of his followers, Mary Magdalene, who had been delivered by, from so many demons. And the other Mary, the Bible calls her, the other Mary. So Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, sat in front of the tomb, contemplating the loss of the one that they loved. They decided, okay, we can do something for him. So they ran home quickly to prepare spices to treat the body. 
the burial spices, all those spices that would actually uh, keep the smell of the rotting body from being too much. And what they would do is they would line the body with all of these spices. We're told in Luke 23 that they spent the rest of the evening trying to prepare these spices, and it took so long that it, all of a sudden they were in the Sabbath. It was the day where they couldn't work anymore, and so they, they did not go back to the tomb. The Pharisees who had organized and structured this death called in guards and pleaded with the, the leadership of the day to say, please go guard. Can we have guards to guard the tomb? They were sure that the disciples would come and steal his body to continue this ruse. In their mind, it was a ruse, uh, this lie, this falseness that Jesus was actually going to rise against it. So please go guard the tomb for us so the disciples will not steal the body. And what that actively did was that it, it actually protected and ensured that the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was documented. On Sunday, angels came blew the, the cover of this tomb away, scared the guards to death. They were scared to death, trembling, and Jesus rose again. It was on that day that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to treat the body with spices, and they were surprised that Jesus was not there. And one passage tells us, that they said, where have you laid our Lord? Where have you put our Lord? And the angel said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He's risen. He's alive. Still, the Mary struggled to believe until Jesus himself appeared to Mary. And he, she fell down. Jesus said, don't touch me yet. I've not been to the Father yet. Just to reassure Mary, yes, truly, I'm alive. The Marys ran to the disciples, and the disciples did not receive their message. They couldn't believe what they were saying was actually true. So they ran to the tomb to see if the tomb was really empty. The reality is, is that all those who followed him in those days and all those who conspired to kill him were sure that Jesus would not rise again. We see these stories all through the New Testament that people were shocked that he rose again. And, and why shouldn't they be? How common is resurrection? When's the last time you heard of someone who died rose again? How many people do you know who were dead and came back to life? It's not normal. It's unusual. It's extraordinary. Why would you believe it, even though Jesus had said it over and over and over again to them? Cleopas and his friend walking to Emmaus, Jesus appears and walks with them. You know the story. They were sure that Jesus Christ was not coming back. And Jesus chastised them and said, where's your faith? You heard what he said. And then their eyes were opened. Are we different? Are we different? Do we believe today in the resurrection? Or do we get stuck in his death? We must remember his death, but we must live with the resurrection. 
the Pharisees conspired again and paid a handsome bribe to these guards to tell a lie that Jesus Christ had not risen, that his body had been stolen by the disciples. And they began, because of this bribe, to begin to spread this rumor. We're told in Matthew that it says it as though it's, it's today that, that the Jews continue to believe this even today. Are we different? Are we different? Do we believe that Jesus Christ truly is alive and living today? For many of us, Jesus is this distant one who lives somewhere that we can't even imagine that Jesus lives up there, that the spiritual realm is there, that someday maybe if we're a child of God, we will see him, but Christ is not living with us daily in our experience. We don't let the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, live in us. Series alive. <laughs> don't you love technology? That's fantastic. <clears throat> we don't believe in the resurrection by how we live. We have this denial of him. And for many of us, it's, it's, it's a fairy tale. It's something we celebrate once a year, maybe over chocolates, uh, candied rabbits, I don't know how you celebrate Easter, but the fact of the matter is, is that the living God lives with us today. Today's celebration is about the fact that a man we believe to also be God lived on earth, that he died, and then came back to life. And not just that he came back to life, but he lives today. The step of faith for us all today is to embrace this miracle. It's difficult to dismiss the resurrection when you consider these historical facts, that there was an empty tomb three days after Jesus' body had been placed in it. That's historical fact. Jesus appeared to hundreds of people in numerous places for almost seven weeks after his crucifixion. It's difficult to dismiss the resurrection when you realize these historical realities, the empty tomb, the appearance to hundreds of people documented, and also, too, probably the greatest thing for me is the reality that people who followed him were willing to give their own lives in service of him afterwards. Peter, who denied him, who disowned him before the cross, is now standing after the cross, making a strong statement about Jesus and willing to give his life. We understand historically that, that Peter, because he did not want to be uh, killed in the same manner as his Lord and Savior was actually crucified upside down of his own choosing because he felt like it was too great of an honor to be crucified just like his Jesus. Peter, who disowned Christ, now stands. After the Spirit of God filled them, after they were baptized in the Spirit at Pentecost, we're told in Acts chapter 2 that Peter now baptized in the Holy Spirit, empowered by God, stands with the other 11 disciples and speaks. He is no longer disowning his Savior. He's now the first one to speak for his Savior. To me, is there greater evidence that the resurrection is really true than the impact of his followers after his resurrection? 
Peter stands in front of all of these people, many of which who participated in the killing of his Savior, and tells them, you killed my Jesus, but he is here to give you life. Acts 2, I love this passage, Acts 2, verse 32. This is the words of Peter. This is what he says. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. We saw it happen. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. Three things. We know Jesus is risen because we saw it. Secondly, this living God sits now at the right hand of the throne of God, the place of honor, and makes an appeal for all humanity for their sins to be forgiven. Day and night, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ sits by the Father and makes our case. And then we are sent the Holy Spirit. Uh, the living spirit of God, as a child of God, this, the God spirit dwells within us, alive today. The reason why the resurrection is so important, is so huge, is because the spirit of God lives with us now. Can you imagine a walk with Jesus Christ without Christ? When we deny the resurrection, we push him away from us. When we deny the resurrection, we live a life absent of his presence. And it's no surprise that we're down. It's no surprise that we have no hope. It's no surprise that we're gripped with fear because we are not living this life with the reality of the resurrection in our lives. Jesus is alive. He invites us to place faith in him to trust him, this miracle that he came back to life and let the living Jesus live in us. We mustn't relegate this to some story that took place in history and miss the living Jesus of right now. Jesus invites us to this reality, he invites you. For Peter, Peter on that day at Pentecost, he said, listen, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God invites us to repent, to believe in him, to accept the living God in our lives. And then the Spirit of God, the only Spirit of God, begins to then live in us day by day. God raised Jesus from the dead. Peter witnessed it as well as hundreds of others. Jesus now sits at the right hand of God and pleads our case. Dad, he says, remember how I paid for their sins. Dad, you remember how this one is a jerk, but remember I paid for his sins. He pleads our case day and night. He lives today. He's pleading our case. Then we're filled with the Spirit who leads us, who guides us, who convicts us. The Spirit of God comforts us, delivers us. He heals us. He preserves us for the day that we get to see our Father face to face once again. 
The invitation is that we would live the resurrected Jesus, that that would be our reality. Not just a point in a moment, in fact, when we gave our life to Christ and we became his child, but that we live and he lives through us until we see him face to face. Someday we will see him face to face because of the living Savior, because of the resurrection. You know what separates us, followers of Christ, from every other religion, from every other system of faith, is the resurrection. Our God is alive. He's not buried in some tomb. We don't worship a, a body living in some tomb. We don't bow down to idols. We have a living Savior who is here today amongst us. Oh, and the life He gives. The life He gives. Our job is just to continue to pursue Him. Paul tells us that we need to be led by the Spirit that we need to walk by the Spirit, that we need to invest in Him, so into the Spirit. We need to be filled by the Spirit. Or, as Jesus put it, says, remain in me. Remain, abide. Continue to walk with me. Continue to celebrate the living God in every aspect of your life. When's the last time you spoke to Him? When's the last time you asked God for help? Maybe you don't believe in the resurrection. When's the last time you told someone about Jesus? Maybe you don't believe he's alive. When's the last time you were intentional about making a disciple? Maybe you don't believe he's alive. When's the last time you were in a pickle and asked God for help? If you're not asking God for help, maybe you don't believe he's alive. God invites us to the living Savior today. He's alive. He's alive. And God gives us a joy that cannot be explained because of his resurrection. I love this day. Like Dennis said already, this is my favorite celebration because this is the reality that we live in day after day, the living Jesus, the miracle of his being alive and alive in us, through us. Praise God for the resurrection. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, and we place faith in him. We stop being dead, and we become alive. The resurrection is for you. The resurrection is for me. The incredible miracle that someday we will get to be in eternity with our Father. That's the resurrection. May he live in you today, every moment of your life. May you experience the living God. Not just the history of Jesus, but the living word. The living God. This is Rico Vecca, and I am also a pastor at New Song Family Church. I want to thank you for listening to this message today. And it is my hope that you will join us again for another New Song Family Church podcast.